Even when the chips are down To win her over I'd see the tables turn around She's been the hard way I can feel it in my bones She'll be making my day Not another night alone Well, it's time for Alright, welcome back to the Philip Kiddick Book Club. Uh, this is part three of a six-part series on uh, Philip Kiddick's first novel, Solar Lottery. So let's get right into this. Um, if, you, if you're just joining us, I urge you to go back and listen to those first two episodes and, uh, and then come back and listen to this one. Um, but we're going to start with chapter seven. We'll do seven, eight, nine in this episode. Okay, so where we left off, um, Bentley... Our main character, or one of our major characters, is shocked to be called Peleg uh, to his boss, Reese Varick. Um, it's in this chapter that he learns a very important truth about Peleg, this character, what exactly is. Um, after the shock of being called Peleg by Reese Varick, um, his co-workers, Moore and Eleanor, promise to sort things out. They complain that, that Varric doesn't really understand the true nature and power of, of Peleg. Moore talks about how he's developed an interest in automation and androids and is working with Varric because he's the one with the money to support his research. And we get a nice little quote um, talking about the, what this Peleg fig figure means to, to Moore. He says... Look, I took Macmillan's papers, all that basic stuff he did on robots. Whatever came of that? Just the wireless hulks, glorified vacuum cleaners, stoves, dumb waiters. Macmillan had the wrong idea. All he wanted was something big and strong to lift things so the unks, the unclassified, could lie down and sleep so they wouldn't be any more unk servants and laborers. Macmillan was pro-unk. He probably bought his classification on the black market. End quote. Um, well, let's just cut to it. Peleg is simply a robotic shell in which people's consciousness can be uploaded into. And I'll, I'll say more about that in, in, in a bit. But here's another important point about this novel, Solar Lottery. The importance of, of automation runs throughout this entire thing. And here we have automation presented strictly as labor-saving device to free people from drudgerous labor. Um, some of his models, stoves, vacuum cleaners, dumbwaiters, reflects 1950s suburbia in, in a lot of ways, which is kind of the world that Philip K. Dick came out of, the one he knew well, and the one he would critique uh, throughout his career. Well, anyways, after hearing this, Eleanor scolds more for the delay in, in deploying Peleg. His job is to, of course, assassinate the new Quizmaster Carthright. Uh, it's all part of the system. You can go back to the first uh, episode of the series to hear how that system kind of works out or to review that. He says, every moment you delay gives Cartwright more of a chance to survive. And that's actually historically true. The quizmasters that live through the first few weeks are more likely to have a long career. The one most die within a few, few days. Every hour lost decreases the chances of a successful assassination. So um, Bentley wakes up as himself. And we learn at this point that, that Reese Varick is, is breaking the rules that are normally done for assassinations. Normally, a new quizmaster is chosen, and then you can have one assassin. One assassin can seek it out. But by using robotics and uploading consciousnesses into ro this robotic shell, Peleg, Varick is able to make use of dozens of different assassins. Not at once, however. This, they tried doing this, putting like 10 mines or 20 mines into Peleg. 
into this robot, it didn't seem to work. It just created confusion and distortion. But the idea seems to be multiple minds that can come in and out of this assassin, allowing him to really be unpredictable, right? Because what the Quizmaster has on his side are telepaths. This telepaths can read the minds of the assassins and get a fix on them. By constantly switching ideas, it's going to be less likely that the assassin will be caught. And basically, you keep you, you make it unpredi as unpredictable as possible, right? And, and this is really interesting when we get to the theme of the novel, which is randomness, unpredictability. In fact, here, Varric seems to want to use this principle of unpredictability to his, to his advantage. Now, later, Varric explains that he feels something is amiss with Cartwright, mostly because he kept his peak. P card. Now, to explain this again, the P card is a card everyone gets. It's their basically their chance to become a quiz master. It's like their everyone gets one, and if you if your numbers call, then you get to be the quiz master, right? Of course, the chances is like one in billions. So most people just sell them for a few dollars. In fact, Cartwright has not only kept his original P card, he's bought more. So that's a very strange thing for an unclassified to do. Um, usually, they don't hang on to them because they're you know they're they're basically worthless or worth very little, and most people would just sell them. Why would any unclassified keep his P-card when the chances of winning the lottery were so slight? But he also explains that the use of the robot, the use of Peleg, and the use of multiple consciousnesses is a way to try to beat the Minimax system and undermine the entire system of randomness. Which, I, I, again, I think it's interesting because the whole way Peleg will succeed is by being as random and as randomized as possible. Where am I? Okay, I'm looking for this quote here. Actually, this is Moore explaining this. He says, Peleg is the obvious answer. We have 24 different minds. There should be no contact between them. Each of the 24 sit in a different cube here in Farben. Each is hooked up to the implementation machinery. At random intervals, we switch into a different mind. Picked at random, each mind has a fully developed strategy. Nobody knows which mind is coming next or when. Nobody knows which strategy, which pattern of action is about to start. The teeps won't know from one minute to the next where Peleg's body is going to what's what Peleg's body is going to do. Okay, so this brings us to chapter eight. Um, so chapter seven is mostly about explaining a bit about the plan. So in chapter eight, this is a chapter all about Eleanor and Bentley and and their rela their emerging relationship and relationships in general. It's about living as a telepath. It's also a little bit about uh, the theme of consciousness, which is a big one in this novel. Anyways, Eleanor brings Bentley to an apartment and they have some they discuss some intimate issues, mostly about what it's like living like a teep. Now, of course, Eleanor has gotten rid of her telepath telepathic powers. The biggest problem for as a telepath is that she both hates and loves the core, which is the organization which all telepaths get put into. And if you've seen Babylon 5, it's kind of a similar idea as to there, where the government wants to have a control over all the people with telepathy. You know, it's here, it's not really to protect the people. That's how it's used in Babylon 5, is a way to protect people. Here, it's more to give them, put them into government service. She misses the feeling of being part of a larger family. That's what she used to. She's raised in this, this telepathic core. But she's also alienated from non-teeps who hate being with telepaths and don't trust them. And she's kind of between these two, even though she's now no longer a telepath. She says, 
I'm completely cut off on my own. It's a terrible ordeal for me, Ted. I had to go with Varric. He's the only man I've ever felt completely safe with. He cut me off from my, but he cut me off. It cut me off from my family. I hate being alone. I get so frightened. Later on, I'd stay with the core, I guess, but I hate the core. Prying, listening, always knowing what's going on in your mind. You really don't live as a separate individual. You're a sort of collective organism. You can't really love. You can't really hate. All you have is your job. Even that isn't yours. You share it with 80 other people, Behave people like Wakeman. Well, um, what are we to make of this? Well, of course, we have Peleg, this robot, who's, who's not really a collective consciousness, but there's 24 minds kind of working uh, in sequence there. It's, it's kind of randomized there. But you have the potential for a collective consciousness there, at least in his, his life. Peleg's life, such as it is, would be the collective, the aggregate of these different experiences and ideas. And as we see later on, we're going to have other examples of collective consciousness playing out uh, in this in this book, and actually in these chapters. This scene actually puts an earlier chapter where they seem to have sex, or at least participate in some kind of bacchanalia of sorts at Varric's party in some context. It seems to provide some also collective consciousness that is missing from from her life. If you've ever been at a rave or a party where many people are dancing, maybe a bit intoxicated, and you might feel almost kind of a religious experience there. And I, I think that's possible. People have reported on this and have had this kind of thing. So perhaps that was partially her desire to to join with other people. And of course, that's what families and relationships are. And Dick is someone who really is sentimental about relationships. He, he, he failed at, at several marriages, obviously. He was married f f five times. But nevertheless, he seems to always be striving to have this, this family life. Um, and his anxieties about that are often reflected in the novels. And I think in this case, we have a bit of that going on. So Bentley seems to connect with Eleanor's conflict with in his own case as well. In his case, it's his anxiety and his conflict over being part of a kind of an institution. In this, in his case, the Hill, uh, he goes got let go, and this gave him the opportunity to seek out new employment. But both the Hill and the Core are these collective institutions in a permanent conflict with, with the, with an individual. Right? I believe it's Emma Goldman who said the major tension in all of history is the struggle between the individual and the institution. And it's revealed on page, uh, in my version, on page 84 and 85, to be a major theme of the novel. The directorate, Eleanor laughed, what's that? An abstraction. What do you think makes up the directorate? She breathed rapidly, eyes wide, pulse throbbing. It's people who are real, not institutions and offices. How can you be loyal to a thing? New men come in and old ones die, faces change. Does your loyalty remain? Why? To what? Superstition. You're loyal to a word, a name, not to a living entity of flesh and blood. And then a little bit later on, this is Bentley's response after a few, a little bit back and forth on this. Um, Bentley says, I like to pull this whole thing down with a big loud crash, but I don't have to. It's collapsing by itself. Everything is thin and empty and metallic. Games, lotteries, a bright kid's toy. All that holds it together is the oath, positions for sale, cynicism, luxury and poverty, indifference, noisy TV sets shrilling away. A man goes out to murder another man and everyone claps their hands and watches. What do we believe in? What do we have? Brilliant criminals working for powerful criminals. Loyalty we swear away to plastic busts. 
So they seem to have an agreement of the the failure of this kind of loyalty to institutions or ideas or systems. Bentley's a bit more cynical about uh, the mass collective, um, and Eleanor is more cynical about kind of the institutional collective. But they seem to be getting to the same place, maybe from slightly different ways. And I think it's a very interesting discussion. Uh, I have the, Vin the no the Mariner edition. Um, I think they've all been reprinted uh, by Mariner Books recently. And that's the version of this I have. It's on page 84 and 85. I really think it's thematically part of the core of what this novel is trying to get at. So Eleanor also sort of agrees that the entire system is fragmenting around them and that this top-to-bottom loyalty is only a facade and a dangerous and useless one. Now, as Eleanor begins to get intimate with Bentley by discussing his past relationships, and there's kind of a, a teenage-ish kind of conversation about, you know, who was your past boyfriend or, or past girlfriend's kind of conversation. Um, but she is, by building up this relationship with Bentley, we need to take it seriously because she starts to be overwhelmed with um, contentment. She sees this new community forming around her. She even talks about that, the community of Varric and Bentley coming into it and the other people she works with. She's lost the core, but she's got this new community forming around her. She's got this huge, deep desire for a real collective goal, and that seems to be driving her. Although she's skeptical of the institution, she has a, a true desire for a collective goal, to be part of a community. Now, things get fairly hot and heavy as Bentley confirms that he is committed to the plan, but he leaves before anything serious happens. Eleanor is a bit disappointed by this, unable to teep Bentley. She's facing a lot of uncertainty about her relationship um, with with him. And I, I think this relationship works. Um, you know, Dick's not the best always at writing women, and sometimes his relationships are either very rushed um, his novels are all short, so that's part of the reason for that. And they often have a lot of characters, so there's often not time to build relationships in very organic ways. The relationships we get that are most f fleshed out, like in Now Wait for Last Year or Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep, are usually pretty hard to read. They're pretty brutal. They're, they're tough to, to look at. So um, this one, it sort of works for his first novel. I think it does okay. Um, but there it is. It's Dick's first kind of novel relationship anyways chapter nine the last chapter we'll look at in this episode um so after five chapters of of dealing with bentley and his relationship with varick and eleanor we finally return to our new quiz master leon cartwright and he's talking to the captain of the Pres the prestonite ship now remember that the prestonites are people who believe that there is a essentially a like a tenth planet um, and it's called, what's it called? The Flame Disk. This is the 10th planet, and they want to seek out a new frontier. So that's the Prestonite's goal. The founder was this guy named Preston, and he apparently lives in a, he's, he's dead, not lives, but he's apparently dwells, he exists uh, in a crypt um, back on Earth, but he's kind of created a movement around him. The report coming back from the ship is that they reached the limit of where humans have explored. So at this moment, they're going to go where no man has gone before, right? Just past the orbit of Pluto. Um, I, I, yeah, this is before the Voyager probes and things. So I think it's it's interesting that Dick here is not imagining a, a humanity has gone yet past um, the borders of the solar system. And, and we have, actually. We've gone past Pluto with, um, with um, probes since uh, this has been written. 
Anyways, Cartwright at this point gives permission to some of the doubters to jump ship before going beyond this point of no return. So it seems they would go to Pluto. All the planets of the solar system are populated uh, in in this world. Um, and Dick doesn't care to get into the, the science of that, about terraforming or anything like that. He just puts people there. Um, he, he does that all the time. He puts people on Venus, of course, which is utterly uninhabitable. And I think he should have known it. I think the science about Venus was available in the 1950s. Anyways, um, Cartwright, he cares about the mission, but he's really more taken with the upcoming assassination attempt. <laughs> he knows there's guns pointed at him. Um, and we move to the ship. Our eyes in the ship are, well, partially the captain, Captain Grove, but mostly Mary and Conklin. These are two Prestonite pioneers, and they're in a relationship. They talk about a sea space serpent, and they talk about the safe, you know, once you go leave beyond the map where what is known, you might run into, you know, serpents or whatever. Now, if you know, old maps often will draw in, like, the sea serpents, you know, for land, for waters that haven't yet been explored. And this was because, you know, people would just have reports that, you know, there's monsters down there, right? Or, or ships would get lost, and reports would come back that there, you know, big sea serpents there. So they'd show up on these old maps. Um, and you have a bit of that going on in this chapter where am I anyway can't find it I'll move on um, but you can, you can look for it there's a mention here about maybe you know this worry of a space serpent eating the ship now Conklin begins to have second doubts on the mission which he supports but thinks it's being led by religious delusions instead of rational science and of course the Presidentes are a kind of a religious movement so he has got a point here but we get this question what is the proper vector for frontier expansion should it be the romantic exuberance or should it be science should it be kind of the love of adventure the love of a new world the kind of wild west motif or should it be science and planning and and that and it's you know, it's it's a really important question, I think, as we th if we think about space as a frontier that we can settle. Um, do we need that frontier spirit again to make that work? Of course, we also need science. We need, you know, that knowledge base to make it work as well in, 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 bi in all the different fields. And um, Dick is, I think, aware of the need for both. Um, and I th he explores it in his stories and a lot of his novels where he's interested in the frontier admit that you, you sort of do, do need both. I think the world that Jones made is a good example of, you know, the it's not enough to have the, the desire and the passion for a new frontier. You have to have the hard science to back it up. We'll get to that in, in, when we look at that novel. Mary responds that religion is actually necessary, and she talks about how she became a Prestonite and how the becoming a Prestonite gave her meaning in life and saved her from a very pathetic life as a bed girl prostitute and this is the second time this profession is mentioned it seems to be widespread bentley uses one in the first chapter now right around this moment the ship is addressed by a voice and now how this happens is a bit you know you have to kind of read it a couple times to maybe we'll figure out what's going what's happening what's happening here some consciousness seems to be taking over conklin and it's just before he could kiss mary this parallels nicely with bentley and eleanor their romantic encounter was stopped by the collective agenda of the Varric plot and Bentley's desire to stick to that and stay focused on that. Here, a romantic exchange is interrupted by the takeover of his mind by an external mind. 
In both cases, the individual desire is disrupted by an external and irresistible force. So we again get loss of autonomy. If you go back to my previous episode, episode two, I talk about loss of autonomy, particularly in the party. And, um, and of course, the whole system of loss of autonomy, how we don't have our, you know, everything's randomized in this world. Even who's our leaders is all random chance. If you're going to be assassinated, that's random chance too. So people don't really have this feeling of autonomy. And one thing the Prestonites seem to want is to give people that autonomy again. But out here, people lose it. They lose it by encountering this external intelligence. Um, now, the voice either goes into people's minds or it's spoken through their mouth. It's a little bit ambiguous in my mind when I, when I read it. But anyways, everyone on the ship gets it because w when the narrative ships to Crafting Groves, we find that he's also being overcome by this powerful voice. But he manages to resist it a bit more and is able to kind of act on his own um, will for, for a bit. Now, Preston, the, the, you know, the founder of the Prestonite movement, predicted the presence of voices. And this is proven to be true by this voice, of course. The voices speak of the recent arrival of the ship um, welcoming them. It talks about how the flame disk was brought to the solar system fairly recently. It talks about how the flame disk is the homeland of the voice, of the owners of the voice. And how they hope for cultural integration between Earth and themselves. But they find that they must first study the humans who have recently arrived before they can do that. They say, Flame disk was placed in your system for a reason. Contact between our races must bring us to a new level of cultural integration. But we must study you. We must know more about you. We do not decide quickly. As your ship is guided towards the flame disk, we'll reach a decision. We will decide whether to destroy you or to lead you to safety on flame disk to a successful conclusion of your enterprise, I'm oh, sorry, expedition, end quote. So that's that's kind of where the chapter ends. We get a brief return to Varric. Varric uh, has a bug, had a bug on the Prestonite ship, so he hears this too. He hears the voice and he's able to record it. They're able to analyze the voice using their computers and they can prove that the voice belongs to none other than Preston himself. Moore can't accept this, Preston, of course, has been dead for 150 years. His body is apparently on Earth. But Varric suggests that they open the crypt to prove that Preston's body is not there and uh, to prove or at least strongly suggest that he is alive out there on Flame Disk. Um, so that's where the halfway point of the novel ends up. We have several different plot lines. This is common in Dick novels. Several different plot lines that are not directly converging but are crossing over at points. Uh, of course, Varric is one of those cross points. Cartwright is another one of those cross, cross points in these plots. So we, but um, we don't really see how Bentley fits in with the uh, Prestonite plot or how uh, the Prestonite plot is really going to affect the, the assassination attempt of Cartwright. And will, if those lines come together, we'll find out in the future chapters. So thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in part four. If you have any questions or comments, please post them. Um, please rate, subscribe, share this with your friends. Um, but I'll see you next time uh, in the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Thanks so much for listening. I've been too long overdue. Now I'm going to shoot the moon. I did it all on a good run of bad luck. Seven come eleven and she could be mine. Lucky a lady and I'm going to find love coming on the bottom line.